Good morning. 
take a look in our bulletin. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Romans 5, verse 18. Today is our communion service, so following the morning worship, again, as our uh, tradition, in 10 minutes or so, we'll regather and we'll have our communion service and a then there'll be no evening service. Movie night coming Friday, March 13th. Ooh, Friday the 13th, eh? Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll announce the... <laughs> Something tells me no, we will not be watching that. We'll be at the Armstrong home. Cost is $3 uh, per person. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Andrea's number. Thank you for your giving. Days of Praise um, booklets are here for the next quarter as well as the new Acts and Facts. And you all heard that Jack Griffin went home to be with the Lord on Wednesday. Memorial service being planned for um, a later date. So we'll wait to hear on that. Also, one uh, item that's not in the bulletin, next Sunday after service is uh, deacons and elders meeting, so be prepared for that. Um, do we want to, we're going to hang around a while, are you going to bring a lunch, or what do you think, guys? How, is it going to take a while, or? Okay. I am not cooking, but if it's a half an hour, we can grab one of the little uh, granola bars here, and we'll be okay. Okay. Um, what else? Anything else? Forgot something? Scripture for meditation this morning read Psalm 
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship together. Phil, can I ask you this morning? Yes. morning. You take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 711. 711 in the red. Trinity.
have a favorite hymn this morning from anyone? Mr. Ken. Yes, sir. Uh, 26 in the brown. 26 in the brown. And do you have a reason for this one this morning? Uh, my fortress is our God. And uh, generally recognized as the chapel hymn of the Reformation, written by Martin Luther. And uh, we don't always agree with everything he preached or taught, but uh, we do commend him for exposing the error of the Catholic Church and withdrawing from it's a great hymn. All right, thank you. 26 in the brown.
scripture reading this morning is found in Romans, the fifth chapter, and we'll be reading together 17 through 21. Let's stand as we read the word of God. Romans 5, 17 through 21, that's 1753 in the Pew, Pew Bible. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through Jesus to bring eternal life, sorry, might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 201, 201 in the brown hymnal.
I'm a little low. Let's see if that's it. <laughs> Methinks my air thing left me. Oh, it's me. quite a bit. <laughs> well, that might be too high. I don't know. Find out in a moment. Guess we'll find out. Do you feel okay? Is it close enough? Yeah, that's good. Okay. Now I'm in the clouds. <laughs> It's fun getting old. <laughs> Not. <laughs> We're in Romans 5 today. Romans 5. <clears throat> Verses 17 and following. Last Lord's Day we taught on the two Adams. The first being the Adam that you all know about. The Adam of Eden. The Adam married to Eve, the Adam who was the first man created directly by God and an image bearer of God. He had but one restriction from God, and that was to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which grew in the middle of the garden. He failed, along with Eve, through the lie of the evil one, who promised wisdom through disobedience. I want you to think just about that a minute. Can you ever be wise through disobedience? Wisdom through disobedience. That was the thing that Satan suggested. His sin plunged the race into death because of his representative position. All of us were there in Adam and Eve in seed form, to be sure. Sin is not calculated where there is no law, verse 13, nevertheless, people died from the time of Adam to Moses, we are told, because of their association with Adam as their head. As put in the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, in Adam all die. Hello. That's what he obtained for us, our federal head. What did he obtain for us? Death. Sinfulness and death. That's what the first Adam accomplished. Secondly, we looked at Jesus as the last Adam. Now, he's not the second Adam, though I suppose you could argue that too. But he's called in Scripture the last Adam, which means there's not another representative coming. You have two representatives, one representing us in our sin nature and one representing us in salvation. Jesus' representative headship is of his people. It's the same principle. What he did counts to all believers, even if they didn't do it. In Jesus' case, his actions were righteous, not evil. So it is his righteousness which is charged to our account. By faith in him, not sinful failure as in the first Adam. The contrasts are tremendous. To be a son of Adam, all that has to happen is for you to be born. Born as a human being. To become a son of the last Adam, Jesus, you must be born again, which is the work of God through his Holy Spirit. John chapter 3. Now what I want to do today is to concentrate on the accrediting of righteousness to us as sinners because of the life and work of Jesus 
who is described in the scriptures as the last Adam. He's it, folks. There's no other one coming. This is the only Savior the world is going to get. Come to him and be saved. Don't come to him and lost for eternity. That is the sobering news. Good news, bad news, all in one thought. So as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, we're looking at some theological issues here that we need to understand. That we are found in our representatives and that what our representatives do affect us. So we pray that you will help us to see that in Adam all die. Yeah, that's true. We don't like that representation. But those that are in Christ inherit eternal life. We do like that representation. We didn't have to die, but our representative did for us. We didn't have to appease God, but you did. And whatever you have accomplished, you accomplish for your people. If we will believe in you, if we will trust in you. I pray that you'll bless us in the hour and help us to understand these things. Some of it's pretty theological. But Lord, we look to you to give us your understanding. To the praise and glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. We're in Romans 5, and we're going to look at the gift of of righteousness, the gift of righteousness. It's the same principle, but there are different outcomes. In our present study, we have been analyzing the principle of federal headship. That's the truth that the first man, federal, okay, that the first man, Adam, because he was the first, affected all of his posterity by his actions. Likewise, Jesus coming in as the last Adam represents his posterity by his actions as well. So there's kind of the uh, parallel. Representation that affects a vast number of others should not be that difficult for us to understand because we have that in our society everywhere. Michigan is certainly a union state, by which I mean the United Auto Workers, UAW, represents all those employees of the big three, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler. Union contracts are usually three years, but as things start to wind down in the third year, negotiations begin for new contracts. While the three major auto manufacturers bargain separately with the UAW, the process is the same. Duly elected union officials, they sit down with management representatives to work out such things as wages, hospitalization, pensions, and so on. Not all of the 50,000 plus UAW employees sit down with the auto manufacturers. (laughs) That'd be almost impossible to think how that would work out. No, the representatives talk. They argue, they bargain, they write it down on paper. 
They go over the wording in detail time and time again. And while the UAW may have the final vote of approval, those thousands of workers, even if they disagree and vote no, they have to wait while their representatives go back to the bargaining table to hammer out a compromise to get a deal. In the end, the UAW must and does accept the deal. Their representative heads have secured. No matter how many revisions it took to get the deal. This kind of representation is everywhere. A few representing the whole. We have it in the simplest of all organizations, the family. God assigns headship to dad. We say the buck stops here. But even in rebellious homes in which the wife might become a head, family decisions are affected by the representative head. In the church, we have duly appointed elders. Yes, they have to meet God's requirements. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. But that being the case, the church at large is cautioned. Let me read it for you. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would not be well for you. Hebrews 13, verse 17. In retail stores, from the mom and pop party store on the corner to the large Walmart and Menards and Myers box stores that occupy acres of space, they all have some person or persons at the head who call the shots for the entire chain, for the entire store. Now here's the rub. There are good representative heads who make good and wise decisions. And there are bad representative heads who make wicked and ignorant decisions. It's everywhere. I remember some years ago, quite a few years by now, Solyndra's failure in the solar industry was due in large part to poor management. Since the solar panel company was funded by U.S. taxpayer money, the loss, which was $500 million, came out of your pocket and mine in the form of taxes. And on top of the bankruptcy, government management did no better when it approved the destruction of all the solar panels already stockpiled instead of selling them off to competitive companies which would have recovered at least some of the loss. But they didn't do that. This all relates to our text when discussing spiritual headships. Adam of Eden failed in his allegiance to God, his creator, his Lord. He opted to believe Satan's lie, and in so doing, he bowed before Satan as his head instead of before God. The consequence of Adam's failure affected all those he represented. Look at verse 17. By the trespass of the one man, 
death reigned through that one man. Also look at verse 14. Or look again at verse 18. The result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. We say, well, how can that be? Because Adam, being the first man, represents all men, and his actions adversely affected his entire posterity. Unlike the UAW contract, you and I do not get to vote our approval or disapproval of Adam's conduct. There's no going back to the bargaining table. There is no new first man. There's no new Eve. There's no pristine, perfect Eden. There's no sinless environment anymore. What we have is consequence. And we have to live with the consequences. More accurately, we die because of the consequences. We are condemned by God in the consequences. That's the principle of representation. The first represents all that come from him. Now consider as well the representation of Jesus Christ. There are consequences to his actions too. How he behaves in reference to God the Father affects the people he represents as equally as did Adam and Eve. The principle's the same, but my, what a difference in the outcome. Look again at verse 17. Adam's one trespass initiated the reign of death that characterized all humanity everywhere. Likewise, for those who receive God's gift of grace, the gift of righteousness, the reign of life is initiated and ongoing. Again, verse 18, Adam's one trespass equaled condemnation. Jesus' one act of righteousness equaled justification and life for all whom he represents. I'm beginning to like this principle of representation. I didn't like it before, but I'm starting to like it now. Look at verse 19. Adam's one act of disobedience made everybody sinners, but Jesus' obedience, many will be made righteous. Oh, I don't like what Adam did, but I sure like what the last Adam did. All of this, brethren, is due to the representative head scenarios. It's the same principle, just different outcomes. We stand or fall before God based on the actions of our representative head. And if all you have going for you is Adam the sinner, then you are in deep trouble with God. You have to have Jesus, the last Adam, as your representative to counteract and to reverse and to restore and to reconcile you to God. You say, well, I think I'm okay. I mean, I don't think it is, I'm as bad as you are portraying things. 
to tell you the truth, actually, words fail me to portray things as bad as they are. Things are actually worse than sinful Adam's representation. You say, well, how, how can that be? Because personal sin, personal sin and judgment for it is on top of the sin by association with Adam. What Adam's representation did for you is to give you a sin nature, a propensity towards sin, which means that apart from God's grace and a changed heart, all you can do is sin in terms of your actions, all the time in thought, word, and deed. Because as Paul describes unbelievers, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, verse 18. Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Wiseman Solomon answers, to, I'm reading scripture, to fear the Lord, says Solomon, is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 8, verse 13. In chapter 16, he says in verse 16, Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for through the fear of the Lord. A man avoids evil. Or in Proverbs 23, 17, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. So the question is, do you hate evil? Do you avoid evil? Do you refrain from envying sinners? If not, then there's no fear of God in your heart. Satan has convinced you that temporal troubles are more to be feared than eternal realities. Jesus himself addressed this when he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, mm-hmm. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. Solomon put it this way, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Proverbs 29, verse 25. Even God's people are motivated more by their fear of men than their fear of God at times, at times. Remember Abraham with Abimelech, King Abimelech? He was king of the Philistines. And as Abraham and Sarah approached that kingdom, he was fearful that because Sarah was such a good-looking woman, that the... The Philistines would kill him to get her for themselves. And so he was full of fear. Let me read it for you. Genesis 20, verse 11. I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place. (laughs) And they will kill me because of my wife. Genesis 20, verse 11. Aaron's explanation to Moses 
for fashioning a golden calf from the jewelry of the people was this. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. Exodus 32:22. He was afraid of the people more than he was fearful of God. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life from Ahab and Jezebel over whose idolatrous prophets he had just won a great victory. 1 Kings 19, verse 3, but he was still scared. That woman, that hateful woman, it's going to come after me with all of her forces, and they're going to kill me. And he ran. All of this, fear of men and what they might do to us, pales in comparison to our position before God and what he will do to us as lawbreakers. There is condemnation on all humanity because of Adam's representation. But notice now verse 20. The law of Moses was added so that the trespass might increase. We've been learning that men are guilty as sinners before God through Adam's representation. In Adam all die. But now Paul tells us one of the purposes for God giving his law think about the Ten Commandments, was so the trespass might increase. Well, what does that mean? The trespass might increase. Far from the law being given so that men could obey it and be saved, God gave the law so that men could see their own personal trespass against God and thus their great need for a Savior why the law was given. Consider when the wealthy young lawyer approached Jesus. Now a man came up to Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. When he said that, he was telling on himself. What was he telling? He was saying, Lord, just tell me what I need to do to get eternal life, and I will do it. Now you see, he thought he could do it. That's not his question. He saw his problem as simply one of ignorance. In other words, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but if you tell me what I'm supposed to do, I'm sure I can do it. How did Jesus answer him? Well, he did not argue with this young man, but he used the law. Listing a number of the Ten Commandments, the young man said, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Matthew 19, verse 20. And Jesus answered, By explaining commandment number 10 this way. If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. What's the 10th commandment? The 10th. Thou shalt not covet. 
give me more, give me more, give me more. Things, things, things. And we read, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus put his finger right on the one area of this man's sin where he couldn't weasel out from under the weight of the law of God. Commandment 10 was highlighted by Jesus in very practical terms. Thou shalt not covet. And it was the pin that burst this young man's balloon of self-righteousness and confidence. The law did what God intended it to do. It brought conviction of sin. This young man was feeling pretty good about himself until the law of God became more than an academic exercise to approve what he thought of his own righteousness. Jesus challenged his thinking, using the law for its intended purpose to show this young man that he was a trespasser of God's requirements. You know, that's the law's purpose. That's why God gave it. Not to save you. Not to say, okay, in the Ten Commandments, here they are. You can earn eternal life if you keep them. No, no, no. It's rather to say, try as you will. You can never obey the law. You can never do it. You don't have the will. You don't have the heart. You don't have the ability. All you can do is break the law and that shows that you are self-condemned, not self-saved. Very humbling. Paul had the same experience. A great apostle Paul. By the way, all of us better come this route or we're not going to get saved. Here's Paul's testimony. He says, once I was alive. Apart from the law. But when the commandment came, that means into his consciousness, the commandment was always there in the law. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Oh. Romans 7, verse 9. What did he mean? Well, he meant that so long as his mind did not reflect on God's perfect standard, he did not see himself in any kind of danger. He was pleased with his own righteousness, his own position as a religious man, as one who had earned approval from, from God. He was alive. He was happy. He was alive and content, alive and confident of his eternal destiny. Heaven was in the bag. Oh, yes, it was. Oh, but the bag developed a gaping hole when to his consciousness God applied commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet
And with that commandment, his conscience was aroused. It became personal. And he says, sin sprang to life and I died. I died. I could see Paul just going down through, thou shalt love the Lord your God. Yeah, I do that. With all your heart, soul, mind. Yes, I do that. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, that's me. Thou shalt not steal. Yes, oh, that's me too. I don't steal. I'm, I'm a good uh, man in, in terms of what belongs to me. Down through all of the Ten Commandments, one through nine, he's feeling pretty good. He gets to commandment number ten. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Oh. He could not get past commandment number 10. He's telling on himself. What's he telling us? He's telling us he was a man that coveted what others had. Whether it was money or position or authority or power, we don't necessarily know. We just know that commandment number 10 slayed him. It slayed him. Brethren, that's the purpose of the law. It wasn't given to save you. It's given to show you that you need a Savior outside of yourself and your own abilities. It was given not to show you how good you can become, but to show you how bad you are. It was given to show that in addition to Adam's one trespass of one command of God, the sin you and I practice involves many trespasses of multiple righteous commands so that we are doubly guilty before God and even out-sin Adam. Wow. Some years back, there was a young man in the news who, vacationing with his buddies in one of the seashore resorts, decided, foolishly, <laughs> that he would see how deep a hole he could dig in the sand. When he got to 17 feet, I can't hardly believe this, he got 17 feet, he soon realized he had reached the limit of his ability because the hole caved in on him and buried him alive. He was at the mercy of his friends to dig as fast as they could in the sand before he suffocated. He did survive. They got him out in time. His folly would have killed him had not someone from the outside and independent of him stepped in to rescue him. The law of God allows us to dig a hole for ourselves through self-righteousness. But in the end it buries us in our impotence to obey God's standard perfectly. It'll bury you. It will not rescue you. You and I need someone independent of us 
to step in, step down, stoop down in our inability and pull us up from the dirt and breathe into us spiritual life. That's what salvation is all about. We need a spiritual representative who is sinless and blameless. And that's why Christ came. And that's the second point. Jesus and his gift of righteousness. We should note that the last Adam, who is called, is what Jesus is called, the last Adam, had a sinless life. By the time of Jesus' birth, the law of God had been codified and taught in Israel for centuries. For centuries. It was part of the curriculum of every Jewish boy who attended the synagogue schools. Even at age 12, when his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover feast, Jesus' preferred place was, let me read it for you, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke 2, verse 46. Whereas other young boys... His age were involved with games and other festivities. Jesus was absorbed with learning about the word of God and how it was to govern his life. We say, oh, that boy, that doesn't sound normal to me. Why wasn't he out having fun with the other kids? Well, what you and I define as normal or fun with the other kids Jesus saw as the potential for trouble. We say, well, boys will be boys to excuse our children when they sin against one another and against God. But Jesus was living the life of Adam as God had originally intended. And wonder of wonders, he did it in a less than perfect and sinful environment. The environment of his day was sinful. It was corrupt. But he was not corrupted or sinful in that. Peter words it this way. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2 verse 22. The apostle John came to the same conclusion. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. 1 John 3 verse 5. I want you to think again of that college kid buried in the sand pit of his own digging. What good would it have come to if his friends were in the pit with him when it collapsed? Jesus referring to the hypocritical and false religious teachers of his day told his disciples, leave them, leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Matthew 15, verse 14. Brethren, we sinners need someone distinct from us. Someone not a sinner 
to extract us from the pit of sin that we have dug for ourselves. And that's how needy we are, and that's how desperate our plight. We must have a Savior like that, described by the writer of Hebrews. Such a high priest meets our need. Who? One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. (coughs) That's who we need. Exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, I'm still reading scripture. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins uh once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priests. Men who are weak, weak because they're sinful, but the oath, God's oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Seven, Hebrews 7, 26 and following. Amen. David of old said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear And put their trust in the Lord. Because blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Who does not look to the proud. To those who turn aside to false gods. Psalm 40, the first four verses. Note here that David's hope is not in other sinful men. Proud men with idolatrous views of God. No, he needs the all-powerful and sovereign Lord, to lift him out of the slimy pit that engulfs him from the mud of sin that makes him dirty. That's who he needs. He needs the one to whom Moses sang just days before his death. Moses sang, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. Young people, slimeball friends will not help you find peace with God. Help is not to be found in denying the truth nor in admitting it and ignoring the consequences of sin. People reap what they sow. That's the principle of life. Paul put it this way, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. Sinners pull other sinners down with them. Only God in his grace can set your feet on the solid rock 
that does not move. That's the Lord Christ. Jesus is that sinless Savior who alone can save. And then secondly, there is real temptation to sin, but we gain real righteousness. Some have suggested that because Jesus could not sin and did not sin, that he knows little about the problem we face as sinners. This philosophy amazes me. But it's part of the world's defective and sinful analysis, which goes something like this. You have to be one to know one. Or the slogan is, it takes one to know one which we used to do as a retort with kids. We would tease one another. They would say, you're so stupid you couldn't even add two plus two. And we would say, it takes one to know one. Adult educators have developed a more sophisticated philosophy, but still, based on this childlike assumption, takes one to know one. The new twist is, you have to be one to know one. Hmm. When these educators go looking for a role model, let's say to teach young people to abstain from sexual infidelity because of an unforeseen pregnancy, or to teach them to abstain from alcoholic abuse so they don't crash the car and kill themselves or somebody else, Do they look for a person who has never succumbed to these things? Never been promiscuous? Never been one who abused alcohol? Is that who they look for as the model? No, they do not. They look for the unwed single mother and they make her the spokesperson for the classmates. They look for the kid who smashes dad's car while on a drunken binge and barely escaped his life. The assumption is that help for these sins lies with others who have committed the same sins and now live with regrets. Hmm. God knows that all the regret in the world will not keep others from doing the same sinful things. And people are no exception to the rule. What God provides in his son is the one of whom the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Okay. Yet yet was without sin. There's your your model, Hebrews 4, verse 15. Tempted, tried, tested, solicited to do sin, but he didn't cave in. That's the kind of person you want to look to as your model. A sinner cannot atone for fellow sinners. 
He or she has their own sin burden to bear, and they can't help you. But because Jesus was blameless and separate from sinners, he's your help. And it does not mean that he cannot sympathize and, more importantly, can't save you from where you are. By the way, temptation is not, temptation is not sin in itself. It's a solicitation to sin. The devil desires that you bite the forbidden fruit and die. But the temptation only becomes sin when you bite. Jesus was tempted. He was. In every way as we are. The devil baited Jesus with all the possible propensities of being human. Self-gratification of the flesh. What After 40 days of fasting, Satan comes along and says, why don't you make bread out of the stones? Next, he took Jesus to a high point in the temple and he advocated that he throw himself down because, I mean, after all, God has promised you in his word to assign angels to protect you so that you wouldn't hurt yourself. An appeal to pride. But Jesus said, do not put the Lord to test. Lastly, the devil displayed all of the kingdom's wealth of the world and he promised them to Jesus, oh, if you'll just bow down and worship me. So self-gratification, pride, lust of the eyes. Every category for every sin was dangled in front of Jesus, but he didn't bite. All his resistance was the truth of God's word, which he used to counter the devil's twisted thinking. Same way for us if we're going to be victorious. And this temptation was so intense on Jesus, so draining emotionally and spiritually, that Matthew tells us that after the devil left him, angels came and attended to him. You've never been tempted like this. I have never been tempted like this. We are a little fish compared to Jesus. The devil came after this last Adam, with less subtlety and more viciousness than with the first Adam. Verse 20 and 21 of our text says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brethren, it's fair to say that sinners are saved not only by the cross work of Jesus, but by his righteous life as well. The righteousness that saves is perfect obedience, not one sin in Jesus' life. The first Adam saw to it that none of his posterity would ever be able to save him or herself, let alone another person. We all die in Adam, the Bible says, because we're all sinners in Adam, verse 12. 
Well, how did Jesus escape the taint of Adam's sin? Was he not fully human? Some heretics in the past have actually taught this. But if Jesus were not fully human, then he could never be our representative before God. I want you to think about that. Try some non-union member slipping into a UAW contract negotiation. See how far they would get. They'd boot him out in a heart's beat. The writer of Hebrews says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2 verse 17. Now, I want you to remember that being a sinner is not a prerequisite of being human. Adam was fully a human being before he sinned. So be careful not to predicate of Jesus something that was only known in Adam and his posterity after the fall. Before the fall, Adam was not a sinner. So you could be human and not a sinner. Okay, then how did Jesus escape inheriting Adam's sinful nature? That's a good question. Let me read it for you. Joseph was told of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because, here it is, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Hmm, Matthew 1, verse 20. In other words, no male human being was responsible for her pregnancy. The child was of God's miraculous power by the Holy Spirit. Neither Adam nor any of his descendants had anything to do with it. So obviously the sin nature, excuse me, the sin nature is Adam's legacy, not Eve's. Because he sinned wide-eyed. He sinned willingly. And he is the federal head of the race. Joseph believed this to be true and to make sure that no one would ever be able to accuse Jesus of being his child, so then he would be a sinner, right, by birth. Matthew tells us, Joseph had no union with her, with Mary, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 25. Brethren, every doctrine, about Christ, every doctrine about Christ is essential to your salvation and mine. 
If you give up the virgin birth, you have no Savior. If Joseph or some other man was Jesus' father, then he was a sinner just like you. Dead in Adam, because of Adam's sin nature. But the Spirit of God did otherwise. Paul says the gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, because this one man, this exception to the fallen human race was not Adam's child, but God's. Ooh. The perfect Savior is not only the man who died for believers on a cross, but he's the sinless man who from infancy to adulthood always kept every one of God's commandments without exception, without failure, not even once. You cannot buy this. It's not for sale. It's God's gift to all who believe. That's who we need as a Savior. Someone outside the pit. Perfectly strong enough, safe enough, in the right place to pull us, out, pull us out of the pit and plant our feet on the solid rock. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Savior, how precious. He came seeking the lost. The scripture says he did. He didn't come to seek the righteous. Those that thought they were righteous came to seek the lost. Those that knew that they were sinners. That's us. And because of your perfect sacrifice and your righteous life, you are the only suitable Savior there is and the only one the world is going to get. I pray if there's any here that's outside of Jesus, outside of his salvation, they would come to Christ and see how much they need him. How much they must have him and his atoning work. To ever have any hope of meeting God in peace. And we thank you dear Jesus for such a sacrifice. That you would actually do this. That you would come from glory. And give of yourself in this sacrificial way. That you might have a people. That you might have brothers and sisters in glory with you. And we thank you for that. Seal us with the Holy Spirit. Bless us now as we close this service and in the communion service to come. In Christ's name. Amen. From Trinity Hymnal. Number 703. Seven oh three in the red, let's stand as we sing.
We're going to take a 10-minute break, and then we'll resume for our communion service. There is no evening service, so this second service will be the close of our service today. 10-minute break, then come back when you hear the music. I'll fix that. 